Welcome to another episode of Focused on Christ, where we are passionate about exalting Christ and equipping the Church. I'm Mike Crump here with Pastor Nathan Smith, who is Senior Pastor at Heritage Baptist Church in Lynchburg, Virginia. This week we are looking at Leviticus 23 and the festivals and feasts given by God to the people of Israel. Uh, Before we go into those details, let's talk about the Bible reading plans in the book of Leviticus. Nathan, why do so many people stop reading in Leviticus? It's a hard read. Let's just acknowledge <laughs> it. It's a hard read. And you, you know, you're coming out of the law. Yeah. You're coming out of these aspects of, of, of things that seem so removed to us. And if your cow falls in a ditch, you need to, you know, yeah, do this and call. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you know, unless some of our farmers here, not many people can <laughs> relate to those things. It's harder to relate. Yeah. Scripture is interesting, most interesting to us often when we can relate to it Mm. in some way, and this is one of the most foreign aspects of Scripture because it's very hard to relate to. So when we read through Leviticus, and if we don't understand the fulfillment in Christ, we don't see everything it was pointed to, and we're not looking for that, it can be hard. Although here's a fun challenge, almost like a treasure hunt. If you can go through Leviticus carefully, but but go through Leviticus and say, "How how does Leviticus actually point to Christ. And then you might start noticing, wow, the emphasis on blood mm. is everywhere, and a blood sacrifice was required. Um, the types of uh, animals, of sacrifice, had to be pure, unblemished. The work of the priest, there had to be an intercessor. So if you kind of mm. read Leviticus and then keep your finger in Hebrews and just reference back occasionally, yeah, it can help you appreciate Leviticus better. Okay, very good. Now, as we go into Leviticus and consider these things, what was the purpose of Leviticus? Was it simply this is just the, you know, we, we talked a couple episodes ago about the Ten Commandments and what they meant, and this is just kind of the details of what the walking out of the Ten Commandments looks like? Or is it more than that? So Leviticus is giving us uh, Leviticus from the Levitical priesthood or from Levi, you know, from the Levites. Mm-hmm. So this is a purposed around the work of the priests. Okay. Um, sometimes I've, I've termed it and said, the, the titles of the books of the Bible, mostly, not not all the, not all of them, but mostly, are not inspired in and of themselves. I often refer to, the, to Leviticus as the book of sacrifice. Mm. Uh, this is where the book really details the work of sacrifice, what type of sacrifices are acceptable to God, how the priest is to go about the sacrifice, how the priest himself is qualified or not qualified to bring sacrifice. So it's an instruction manual really on how we approach God from an Old Testament perspective. Gotcha. Okay. So our key quest- question today, as we get into this part of Leviticus at least, is why did God appoint feasts and festivals for the people of Israel? And so if someone were to ask you that question, what would be your answer? Was it just to have a good time, hang out, <laughs> eat some good food? All of the feasts and festivals centered around the sacrifice. That's, that's why we find a lot of them in mm. the book of Leviticus, because the central aspect of the festival was always the sacrifice. Now, if we play that out larger, and we look at the book of Revelation in the center of heaven, the eternal festival, if you will, yeah. the center of heaven is what? Jesus Christ, the lamb as if it had been crucified, mm. or been sacrificed. And so we have the center of the celebration is always the sacrifice. The center of celebration and rejoicing for the Christian is always the work of Christ. Amen. So there is a locus, if you will, of the festival. Mm-hmm. The locus is not 
the food. That's a fun thing on the side. It is not the program. The locus, the center point of the festival is always the work of the priest and the sacrifice. Okay. And they're always there to remind us and to point us to God ultimately and what he has done. Usually we see that very clearly in these festivals. And so we're going to walk through some of these festivals and consider maybe what we can learn or glean from them and see what imagery may be there. Uh, Feast of the Passover is the first one we're going to start at, and the Feast of the Passover began in Exodus, when God saved his people from Egypt. So what what is the significance of the Passover, both for them at that time, but also for us today? So remembering the Passover when the angel of death, or the destroying angel, passed over Egypt and would not destroy the firstborn of those who had the blood of a lamb spread on the doorposts of their house. Mm. So if the house was covered by the blood of the lamb, then the destroying angel passed over them. If not, then the destroying angel entered and destroyed. So the Passover is a reminder that destruction or the wrath of God is avoided via Mm. the shedding of blood. And so that was very key to the Feast of Passover, that that is the time that God passed over those who were covered by the blood, Mm. hence the Passover. Okay. Now, also in the Passover, you have the unleavened bread, which is baked and everything. Is there a connection, because I've heard it said sometimes, between leaven and sin? Well, we have the New Testament referencing specifically that leaven is often used as as an analogy for sin, and mm-hmm. an unleavened bread is is an analogy for holiness and purity. Okay, it's not making a universal statement that um, yeast is sin. Yeah. <laughs> Otherwise, donuts would no longer be, <laughs> or pizza and many other th- I good things. I love yeast; it's so good and stuff. Yes, but it is symbolic <laughs> of how leaven permeates the whole thing and gotcha. actually changes the structure and. We have unleavened bread is, again, one of the symbolic elements Mm -hmm. of the feast to remember that, for one, they departed in haste. They didn't have time for their bread to rise. They had to depart quickly uh, from Egypt, but also uh, symbolic of to be a people that are pure and holy and Mm -hmm. not touched by sin. Yeah. Okay. So moving on from the Passover, which is uh, fairly understood, and I know a lot of people, at least within the church, kind of understand Passover. Uh, next, we see the Feast of First Fruits, and this is simply uh, thanksgiving to God for His provision. Is that kind of the theme here? Yes, it is recognizing that provision comes from God. It's a it's a feast of thanksgiving. All of them have a thanksgiving element. Yeah, not thanksgiving as in turkey, mashed potatoes. Yeah. Thanksgiving, but uh, <laughs> giving thanks to God for His provision. Okay. So the Feast of the First Fruits was. Um, uh, had had to do with acceptance as well as uh, just giving thanks to God for Him bringing us into His presence and providing for His people. Yeah, I, I did find it interesting that you know they they take the first fruits and they just start waving it around, basically a wave offering before the Lord. Yes, and uh, I think we need to do more of that kind of thing. You know, <laughs> well, <laughs> it does sound very similar to uh, the, the the waving of the yeah, palm branches. Yeah. Not only has a royal imagery, but it was yeah. also a sense of. God bringing in his provision of a king. Wow. So there is an element of even uh, when when Jesus comes into Jerusalem for Palm Sunday or for for that Palm event, um, that it's uh, fulfilling some of the imagery we see in the Old Testament. Oh, wow. That's really cool. All right, the next one is uh, the Feast of Weeks. Why is this called Feast of Weeks? So the Feast of Weeks occurs 50 days after Passover. Uh, it's when God established a nation in Mount Sinai. 
And we see in Acts chapter 2, there is a connection where God established a people mm-hmm. at the Feast of Weeks, and at Pentecost, uh, God establishes a new people, mm-hmm. the church. The church. So there is a, con- a continuity that we see between these two events. Yeah. But again, always a reminder accompanied by sacrifice of what God has done to make a people for himself. Okay. Next, we have the Feast of Trumpets, and uh, this one, as I was reading through, I mean, it really literally is just a lot of trumpets being blown, um, a big musical fair going on. Um, so what, what is actually happening here? Uh, there is, uh, there, there's some of it has to do with proclaiming God's victory. Mm-hmm. Uh, the trumpets were blown in celebration. They were also blown in uh, victory over a foe. Mm-hmm. Uh, Interestingly, when the high priest came out of the Day of Atonement, the big sacrifice for the nations, for the sins of the nation of Israel, when he emerged from um, the Holy of Holies, having given a successful uh, atonement sacrifice, mm-hmm. there would be the blowing of the trumpet, mm. and it would be the inauguration on specifically the year of Jubilee into a time of joyous and really endless celebration for mm. a long period of time. And the New Testament picks up on that image in 1 Corinthians 15, 52, where in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. And that inaugurates the eternal jubilee of heaven. And the image is, as we talked about last time, the work of Christ, the high priest, the tabernacle, his work complete, the trumpet is blown, and heaven and the eternal state is inaugurated. Amen. So... Yeah, the end, the end of time, completion, ultimate, there Jesus declaring victory. Um, look forward to that day. Yes. Look forward oh, to that it's, day. It's a beautiful day that the heavenly trumpets sound and jubilee begins. Amen. Well, because of this next feast, or the, or the picture that's in this next feast, we, we can rejoice in that trumpet. And this is the Feast of Atonement, and this is a, a very significant one for the people of Israel. Um, and this is also one for us to consider today, as there's so much rich imagery with Jesus in this sacrifice. So what was happening on the Feast of Atonement? The Day of Atonement was when the high priest, normally garbed in all of his, his just beautiful royal garments that designated his high office, this day would put aside those beautiful garments mm. and come in very simply garbed white linen cloths, and then he would uh, come very simply into the presence of God after offering sacrifice with humility, mm-hmm. and he would go and take the blood all the way into the Holy of Holies and sprinkle it over the mercy seat. And it says in Leviticus, and the details of this can be found in Leviticus 16, okay. but in Leviticus 16, verse 16, it says, "...he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of their transgression, transgressions and all their sins." So he's making right um, the, the, the sin that separates us from God. The word atonement uh, actually is an old English word that literally means at one like in other words, to be brought into oneness with hmm. God. Yeah. So there's a separation, but atonement is to bring what was separate together as one, and atonement is where the high priest, shedding his garments and in humility, comes and offers the blood of sacrifice to unify what was once divided. Mm. So you have Christ on the cross, yeah. who in the incarnation took off his garments of royalty in humility, goes to the cross, sheds his blood, and div- brings what was divided, mankind and God, yeah. and brings them together at the cross. 
I know I say it a lot, but it, it is truly beautiful to consider these images that have been given, and that God is just bringing all of this to be according to his sovereign will in in so many glorious ways. And I I just love that the sacrifice and the atonement back then was pointing to that which we will celebrate for all eternity. It beautifies our understanding of God, his plan of salvation, and how he's worked through history. Yeah, amen. Well, the final one we can look at real quick is the Feast of Booths. And uh, this is... I mean, they literally build booths, the people of Israel, and um, they dwell in the booths for days, and it's a way of reminding them of their desert wanderings. Reminding them of their desert wanderings, but remember these are temporary booths, temporary lodgings. Can you imagine the relief of being done with that and going back to your permanent (laughs) dwelling? So it reminds the people of God's faithfulness during their temporary wanderings, but also gives a longing for mm. a permanent dwelling that is not temporary, that will never go away, yeah. but that will always exist in the presence of God. So the Feast of Booze were meant to communicate reminder of God's faithfulness during our wanderings here on life, mm-hmm. but also to remind us that as John 13, 14, 15, we see the work of Christ and the Holy Spirit, but Jesus specifically says, I have gone to prepare a place for mm. you, and he is preparing a permanent booth, a permanent dwelling yeah. that will never pass away. So we're kind of living in booths now. Yes, right? yes, we're living kind of in a permanent booth. <laughs> we're, we're wandering this world. We're wandering this world. But God is faithful to provide manna and water yeah. and victories over our enemies Amen. as we trust in Him. Amen. So we see all this imagery in these festivals, and surely there were times of rejoicing, even of mourning, of celebration, of like, food and all those kind of things. And much of it a picture of something greater. Is there anything in the New Testament church that is has a similar to these feasts as far as like something that we do or are part of that points to something greater? Well, the fact that the church is a people mm-hmm. and we stand in the continuity of the people of Israel, in other words, we stand as the people of God in this era of mm-hmm. history that we, like them, are gathering to praise the Lord, and the church is the continuation mm. of a people gathering to give thanks to God for what He has done. Yeah. They were giving thanks for God providing a way through animal sacrifice. If they could rejoice for weeks and months at a time, and on years of jubilee, a year at a time, yeah. over that partial fulfillment, my goodness, why can we not, as the church, who now know that the center of our rejoicing is Christ crucified, yeah. who is now living and raised from the dead, we should be a people of jubilee, a people of constant celebration and, and festivals, if you will, mm. in terms of recognizing what God has done. So when we actually gather every Sunday at church, every Sunday at church, think of it like a mini festival hmm. whereby we declare the sacrifice of Christ giving us atonement with the Father. Amen. And just like the people of Israel had a singular identity in being the people of Israel, the chosen people of God, we come together with one identity. Yes. We are in Christ together. We are His body put together for His glory. And I don't think we consider the church that way many times. 
No, we don't. Um, When the people of Israel gathered for the festivals, they were declaring themselves by being a part of the festivals, they were declaring themselves to be the people of God, the people, the nation of Israel. When the church gathers together to worship Christ in song and to hearing the preaching of the word, the fellowship of the word, um, being with one another and encouraging one another, we are declaring that we are the people of God Mm. and that we have a destiny that transcends, if you will, our wilderness wanderings. Amen. Inside the church, we we do have some ordinances that occur, and they do kind of point to something larger. We we do have communion, which uh, we did talk about. You know, connecting to um, comes from Passover. Thank I mean, you. That's that's direct, where I, that's where I was going. Thank continuation you. Continuation from Passover. Yeah, continuation from Passover, um, and even baptism that we celebrate inside of the church and identifying with the people of God. Yes, and that is something that we also rejoice in as Amen. well. Um, so for those who are maybe asking that question, well, what does this all mean for me today? I, I think we did kind of talk about that just a moment ago with be a part of the church, be identified with the local church. That is how God is not just maturing us, but is how we can engage in the mission that God has called us to. It would have been unthinkable for the Israelite to say, I'm an Israelite, and then never go to the festivals and never go to sacrifice and never understand and walk with the people of God. To be an Israelite was to be a part of the people. And you cannot be a Christian by yourself. To be a Christian is to be a part of the people of God. And when we gather, when we practice communion, baptism, Mm. singing, worship, all of these things, we're declaring and also showcasing that we belong to the people of God. So it's of critical importance. The church is not something we passively engage in, yeah. but it is part of our act of identity. Amen. Amen. So we encourage you, get engaged, whatever, wherever your local church is, uh, get engaged and seek the Lord in that place and be a blessing among God's people. Amen. Well, Nathan, thanks again for another lively discussion. Thank you, Mike. And thank you for joining us today for another episode of Focused on Christ. Next week, we are going to visit the book of Numbers to look at one of the most heartbreaking moments in the life of Israel. Pray that you'll join us for that discussion. If you have enjoyed this podcast, take a moment, give us a five-star rating. Also, let some other people know that uh, this is there as a resource for them. You can find out more information on this and many other things at FocusedOnChrist.com.